Kia ora, I'm Katie Harris. It's February 6th and this is The Front Page, the daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Interpretations of the Treaty of Waitangi, or Titiriti o Waitangi, have been some of the most important discussions in Aotearoa's history. But tensions over the documents have reached a fever pitch in recent months after the coalition government agreed to support a treaty principles bill to the select committee phase. Friction over its meaning is expected to be front and centre today as politicians, academics and Māori leaders converge on the site where the documents were signed in 1840. Since publishing the 1987 book The Treaty of Waitangi, Dame Claudia Orange has widely been recognised as one of the country's leading treaty experts. She joins us today on the front page from Waitangi to discuss how perceptions of the treaty have changed in recent years and what that means for a modern Aotearoa. Dame Claudia, to start, since this is Waitangi Day, what significance does this day have? Well, I think you've got to remember that I'm speaking now as an independent historian who has done a lot of research on this and has continued to research it and publish over the years. What people need to realise is that 1840 marked the start of a new nation and it was quite an unusual move at that time. I mean, it has made New Zealand really quite unique or at least uh, we're still fighting to make it unique. I think that's why people need to understand that really we have a unique nation that we should celebrate that agreement in 1840. There's been a lot of talk about it, a lot of debate over the years. Um, It used to be a myth that we'd done so well, but we need to recognise it and celebrate it and feel good about that, about the whole situation. That's going to take time. Now, you're up at Waitangi at the moment. What's the mood like there? The mood is a good one. And this is what people don't realise when they hear about it or see it on radio and TV. Everybody feels really good, but very disturbed and unsure about where our new coalition government is going. It's been a series of tremendous years up here. It's only, unfortunately, just what the TV and radio show is sometimes those quick things that are entertaining but are not necessarily typical of the day. Since 1840, one document's been at the centre of countless protests in New Zealand. Some odd... It's for raping our country, selling away our rights and our freedom. Some pretty serious. Do you think some of those tensions we've heard in recent weeks regarding the coalition government and and this proposed bill, do you think that is impacting the vibe there at Waitangi? Well, certainly there's been a tremendous amount of talk and debate that's going on currently right now down in the big forum tent and also, of course, yesterday with the Kingitanga coming up and a lot of talk about it. I think people are dismayed. I mean, in a way, there's been a backlash against Māori, but I'm predicting that actually there's going to be a backlash from Pākehā about the coalition government too and the extremes with which they register. So it's a worry. Certainly it's been a concern of a great many people I've spoken to. 
When your book on the treaty was released in 1987, how widely recognised was the treaty in government and even in the public discourse? Well, you've got to remember that that Labour government had come in a split election in 1984 and they were committed to doing something about honouring the treaty and the promises made in 1840. And that coincided, of course, with the drive of the government at the same time for economic development. So the two were very much in conflict. People were concerned. So when my book came out, it hit the top of the bestseller list for several weeks. And, you know, people felt that at least it helped explain where we had got to at that time. We also have to remember Treaty of Waitangi Act was 1975, but it only covered anything that happened after 1975. And the difference is 1985, the Labour government, extended the Waitangi Tribunal's mandate back to 1840, opened up the whole history of the country. An affidavit of yours was cited in the 1987 Lands case, which was one of the early cases that introduced the principles into discussion around the treaty. Can you give us some background on how the principles first came to be invoked? That's a very big question, but just very quickly, the government had brought in the State-Owned Enterprises Act And uh, that was seen by Māori as tantamount to selling the assets of the country before there had been any organisation of setting up any satisfactory sort of body to handle the grievances and settlements of the grievances. So that was taken to the High Court and then the Court of Appeal by Graham Latimer, the head of the New Zealand Māori Council. And, of course, the rest remains history. They had to bring in an act that allowed that any private land involved would be under a memorial which would come into play if there was a sale of any of the government assets. It allowed for that land to be still in use as a possible settlement aspect. You've previously said that the treaty was signed with shared authority in mind. Can you explain what that means and how it's coming into play today? Well, I don't think Māori would certainly not have signed the treaty unless it had been explained to them as a treaty that was quite unusual. And you have to remember this is the end of the 1830s with Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery and British holdings. So we're looking at really a completely new thing. So the treaty actually allowed for two authorities, and this is why people are still puzzled about it, I suppose. And if you look even at the English treaty and the Maori treaty, the Maori treaty, you have Tino Rangatiratanga promised under Article 2. That was really authority over land and other things, and also taonga. But on the other hand, on the English one, you have Article 2, allowing for possession of land. So possession wasn't really an equivalent to Tino Rangatiratanga. So that's why Māori signing it felt they had been accepted, a little bit like the Magna Carta. If you think of those who know anything about the Magna Carta in England, you have a collective there in the Magna Carta in England. And the same thing applied here in New Zealand, collective authority. So when people say that it isn't a partnership, would you say that was an incorrect reading? No, I think what we're looking at really is that, yes, it was a partnership, 
But it was, of course, a partnership where Māori also had certainly asked for British protection and assistance. But we're talking then about how much so and not giving away completely their own authority. How could they? In fact, the whole country was still a very much a Māori country until the New Zealand wars in the 1860s when authority started to get into the furthest corners of the land. But it still took a huge, long time. On Sunday, 2nd of April 1916, armed police converged on Mangopohatu. A gunfight broke out and at least eight people were killed or wounded. Historians have described this as the last shooting of the New Zealand wars. Over the decades, and especially in the last few months, there's been a lot of discussion and debate with people disagreeing about whether Te Tiriti and the treaty are the same or separate documents. Where do you stand on that? They are complementary, and I think Māori had sought British protection and assistance. They didn't expect to be done out of what sovereignty they had. And I think you've also got to remember that at that period of time, 1830s and 1840s, the whole issue of what was really meant by sovereignty was still being discussed and debated. Certainly, the kind of situation we had in New Zealand was that Maori were not signing away absolute sovereignty. It was going to be shared. Now, how it would be shared, how you would share authority in a new country remain to be seen. We have to think about it as akin to a partnership. Just think of a waka ama, many of them in, on Takapuna Beach, two-hulled canoes, for example, two-hulled waka, where each um, has a separate hull, but they can paddle together, or let's say two waka going along together, but they are complementary to each other. So the thing that has dismayed me recently uh, the, is the extent to which overseas funding has been put in to alternative interpretations of the treaty that will suit them in various ways, certainly not allowing for uh, the Maori side of the treaty, the Maori translation of the treaty. And that was the one that 540 people signed. You see, there are two copies of the treaty, one in English and one in Te Reo Maori, and they don't exactly say the same thing. For instance, one article of the English treaty says Māori cede sovereignty of New Zealand to Britain. But the Māori version translated sovereignty to kāwanatanga, which actually means a word closer to governance. Another article is similarly unclear about land ownership, and there were only three articles. While we're celebrating Titiriti today, we've also heard more about he Putanga in the last few weeks. Do you think there needs to be more discussion about that document and how it relates to the treaty? Yes and no. I think you just have to understand that the Declaration of Independence was 1835. It was written out by Maori with James Busby, the British representative's assistance for putting together the English version of it. It did ask Britain's help, but it also acknowledged that it was an independent country. There was no question about that. There was a uh, United States consul was appointed to the Bay of Islands in 1838, and all the shipping coming from other places in the world, particularly the United States, recognised New Zealand and New Zealand waters as surrounding an independent country. So if people want to know more about the Declaration of Independence, they should read my book and also just get an understanding of what it would have meant. 
it was just not many years allowed after 1835 for the setting up of any kind of organised government. One of the difficulties, of course, was that the British representative here knew that it was quite likely that Britain was going to intervene. Dame Claudia, you've previously described changes to the treaty as evolutionary and revolutionary. Can you expand on those? Yes, I think that there is a very strong bias in many New Zealanders that we have just one law, one government, one way of doing things. And the changes are not easy to take. Many people, of course, especially those over 60, have not really been uh, educated in history or done a lot of reading in history. But we're actually looking at a period where the rangatahi, the young people, are going very knowledgeable and they want change. So, you know, I think we just have to accept this. Not always going to be easy. But what we're seeing that it does worry me and it's worrying others here and elsewhere is that things are going too far with two extremes. Perhaps there's some justice in saying that there has been a long, a strong feeling pro-Maori in various ways in the last six years, perhaps. But you can't go too far in changing that. There has to be a balance. And the two copies of the treaty balance each other and are are also complementary. On the recent debate regarding Titiriti, what would your message be to politicians on both sides of the equation? My message would be take it more slowly than the urgency and rush with which legislation was put through before Christmas. It was disastrous, I thought, and also hugely upset a very large number of people. We've got a Maori backlash now. Part of it is a Pākehā backlash against the extremes that they're seeing in the new government. And that includes people that are national voters. So I would caution our new Prime Minister to be extremely careful and strategic in moving forward. We want to move forward to this country, not go backwards. And just finally, what are your hopes for Waitangi this year? My hope is that it will see Fina Cooper's words as important, and those words are worth looking at again. The seed I would like to plant in your heart is a vision of Aotearoa where all our people can live together and share the wisdom of each culture. And I think that's a really important thing to bear in mind. Dame Claudia, thank you so much for joining us today. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Ethan Sills. Paddy Fox is the sound engineer. I'm Katie Harris. Subscribe to The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts and tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.